Hey everyone, this is part two of a heart family tragedy. So if you haven't listened to part one yet, make sure you go and do that. And if you're here early on our Patreon fan club, love ya. And if you're listening at the regular release date next Wednesday, we're so glad that you're here. We ended off part one discussing that the Hart family died in a car crash that was ultimately ruled a murder-suicide. So going on from there, there's a 911 phone call at 11.24 a.m. that day. It's March 26, 2018. The caller says there's an overturned vehicle and they're not sure if it just occurred or if it's been there. Jake Slates had heard this initial call and said everyone expected it to be a fatal collision that caused this car to go off the cliff. He remains an investigator throughout this entire case as part of the California Highway Patrol, who's in charge of this case since the Hearts had traveled from Washington to California via the highway. There were many agencies involved, though, 11 different agencies. California Highway Patrol had 10 departments of their own, such as investigative services and the computer crime lab involved. On top of that, there was the Sacramento High Tech Crime Unit and other sheriff's offices like in Minnesota and Washington. They're all involved. So many people were involved in this case. At one point, investigators even made it as far as Palmer, Alaska to interview witnesses. Jake says, quote, by no way is this a case we took lightly. He had stated during his testimony in a hearing to determine the cause of death for the children that Clark County reported CPS had recently opened up another investigation into allegations of child misconduct. Jake believes that Sarah and Jen left their house really suddenly, and this is shown by the fact that they knocked over blocks in the driveway with their car, and they had left luggage behind, they didn't take their toothbrushes. This was a really quick decision that the women made, and he feels from this investigation that maybe driving off that cliff wasn't something they were committed to doing at the time that they leave their home. Soon after that dispatch call comes in and the news is starting to be released, law enforcement releases a statement, quote, all we know is that they ended up at the bottom of a 100 foot cliff and that's what we are looking into right now to see if we can figure out what happened. The media claims this as a social tragedy. Dana DeKalb remembers seeing the news and having this gut feeling that the family in the crash were her neighbors. Remember, Dana is the one who was helping Devante and she had Hannah come over to her house in the middle of the night. Her dad is the first that called 911, all of that. It's confirmed to Dana that Sunday morning, the following day that the news is released, when a reporter calls and leaves a message on their answering machine saying, it's your neighbors who are in the crash. Please call us back. We want to talk to you. Dana and Bruce DeKalb last report seeing the hearts at their home on March 23rd, 2018, just three days before this fatal crash. CPS had actually come to the home as well on March 23rd, and they knocked multiple times attempting to make contact with Jen or Sarah. However, they were unsuccessful and they give up for that day. It's early the next morning in the middle of the night on March 24th when the Hearts put their children into the car and leave the house. I stated in part one that Jennifer and Sarah's friends are all somewhat still supporting them. Dana says that those friends came for her, calling her online a nosy neighbor and a racist, blaming her for leading these women to do that by getting CPS involved in the first place. One person even commented, sounds like the DeKalbs were the drama queens and likely bigots. 
And I'm not okay with that because Sarah and Jen may have struggled with the heat coming at them in certain parts of their lives. And I very much empathize with that. But there are years of patterns and a history of abuse as bad as restricting food of their adopted children. Multiple kids in their home reported the abuse. And I will always believe the children, especially when the evidence is there to back them up. It's Amanda and Jennifer Price who talk about all these threads online of people hating this couple. Amanda and Jennifer thought it was vicious and disgusting, and all they wanted to do was protect their friends, so they'd comment that. And one of them says she was met with people online coming at her telling her things like, eat glass or die, which obviously that's not okay, don't be a bully online, I get that, but I also understand that people are extremely angered by parents who kill six of their adopted children. Amanda and Jennifer said in that documentary, quote, we have had friends tell us they can't even associate with us anymore because we defended the Hart family. They were put under a microscope in a way I don't think anyone deserves to be put under. And I just don't agree with that. Sorry, I don't know if I'm wrong here, but they were put under a microscope because they had allegation after allegation of abuse and they moved multiple states to run from these allegations. And, you know, those investigations. A broken system is what led them to get away with all this abuse. And while a close friend may not have seen their friend in that light, we know that we don't always know everyone. We see the investigation proves that this was an intentional murder-suicide. So I'm with the people who have told Jennifer and Amanda they can't associate with them if they defend Jennifer and Sarah Hart. Regardless of the depression they were feeling or the things they were running from, they had zero right to take the lives of six beautiful kids that deserve to keep living. And when someone murders a child, whether they themselves died or not, their life very much should be put under a microscope and analyzed so that we can learn what happened, discuss the psychology, and honor the life of the children. And Amanda and Jennifer Price do seem to have loved the children as well. They are just having this really hard time separating their love for the children and their love for a family, you know, the family as a whole, including their parents. But they do say that Devante gave the best hugs and that one day while he was hugging them, he tells them that a hug is about their hearts and you have to hold and squeeze so you really mean it. And one woman says that this is wise of him and that her mom told her that. And so she wonders who taught him that. And he tells her that it was his mom. His mom told him that. And this is one of the things that leads Jennifer and Amanda Price to believe that this is a very loving parent and child relationship. Now, Zipporah Lomax is another friend that supports the women, and she's one of their musical fe- music festival friends. She talks about the heart children and how joyful they were, how well adjusted they were. She says that each of them had their own unique personalities. They were all so different. Marcus and Hannah were more quiet and they resonated with Sarah, who was also more shy. But Jeremiah, Devante, and Sierra were very engaging. They're always in the middle of everything that's going on. And they resonated with Jen because this is how she was. There's a video in this documentary of Devante at the Balaga Festival. There's someone on stage singing. It's a man named Xavier. And during his set, he gestures over to Devante, pulling him in for a hug. And when this happens, the whole crowd starts crying. Devante's crying. Everyone's just feeling this emotion from the music and the hugging and all of this stuff. 
And Zipporah says that the tears are flowing down her face as she watched Devante turn around and run into Jen's arms. He's still crying, Jen's hugging him, and she says what she saw there and that memory, it shows her that Devante loved Jen and she loved him. Quote, again, I'm looking through a confirmation bias, but I saw pure love. She states that one of their friends just always says, I'm sorry for not assuming my friends were murderers. And I do understand it's a grief you have to go through. When something like this happens, where people you love do something you cannot wrap your mind around, you, you know, I respect that you have to grieve that and that you should not be persecuted for the memories and the happy memories and the good things you thought of those people. But it does have to be understood that the death of these children makes people mad. Two things can be valid. These people can miss their friends and the perception of who they thought they were. At the same time, the investigation into the crash shows without a doubt that this was a murder-suicide, something that was intentionally planned. And regardless of how good someone seemed to be, that choice was just not the choice for them to make, to take the lives of six children who had no choice. So when Zipporah finds out about the deaths, she was devastated, of course. She sits at her desktop and she's crying. There's this like piercing grief going through her body. And she says she couldn't stop thinking about those six kids that she loves so much. But Zipporah does feel that Jen felt like she was never going to escape persecution from all those who are not tolerant of her lifestyle. Everyone was looking into their lives with this outside view. And Zipporah says the more people who brought suspicion and judgment to the couple, the more the couple closed off. Which, in a way, sure, the more child abuse allegations and the more investigations that were opened by CPS... It was a factor into the devastating decision. It was a factor into them closing off. But I don't think for the reasons that Zipporah does. I'm sure they were closing off to hide the abuse. Zipporah feels they were closing off to escape people judging their life as a same-sex couple. Unfortunately, in this case, I just, I really think it was more about the abuse. Quote, from my observation, from the things Jen told me personally and shared privately on Facebook, the public response to the hug photo was the stare that began the unraveling. Nusheen Bakatar says a lot of the same things that Zipporah does. She loved the kids and she also loved Jen and Sarah. She always remembers the kids being so giddy. They were excited. Devante was smart. He was this huge activist. Everyone thought he was going to be the president with his joking attitude and his sensitive old soul. And then Marcus, she says, was shy. He loved to read. He always had his head down in a book. And Nusheen says that she never understood how much Jen would tell her she doesn't want to be in the limelight, but at the same time, how much Jen's posting on social media caused them to be in the limelight. When the deaths were reported by the media, Nusheen goes on to the news joint six and says, quote, we weren't duped. That love wasn't fake. They loved their children. They weren't white supremacists. They were in pain. Nancy Grace is another media source this story comes out on, and the TV screen reads, Evil parents behind closed doors, alarming links between the two House of Horrors tragedies. Which is exactly what I said in part one. This was so similar to how the Turpin children were being treated, but thankfully in that case, none of them died. Nancy says on her show, quote, The teachers knew, the neighbors knew, and now those kids are dead. 
A comment online directed towards the friends fully supporting these moms who murdered their children says, quote, stop assassinating the characters of dead children in order to assuage your own guilt and complicity in the situation. So what happened after the Hearts pack up their GMC at Yukon XL and drive away from their home in Washington? Jake Slates, that California Highway Patrol officer, testifies that investigators were able to use cell phone pings and surveillance videos to help paint a picture of the trip down the coast and into California. So through the police investigation, along with those cell phone pings, there's a Garmin recovered after the crash, which leads investigators to a Walmart that the heart stopped in before leaving Washington state. A Garmin's basically like a GPS. A lot of times it like comes in a watch. I've seen different things that the Garmin brand makes, but basically a GPS type thing. So while there, investigators have been led to believe that Jennifer Hart went inside to purchase the generic version of Benadryl, which ties into this story here in a minute. Another insight into the days leading up to this is 3 a.m. on March 24th, 2018, Sarah is texting her coworkers and she says, I'm so sorry. I thought I was going to be able to come into work, but I'm so sick and I actually might need to go to the doctor. Well, Sharon Babbitt also helps give a little insight into those last days. She was an online gaming friend of Jen's and interacted with her daily from 2015 to 2018. She remembers that days before the accident, a group of these online gaming friends were concerned when Jen doesn't respond to any of the group chats for a couple of days. And she's not playing, which is weird because she would normally play for at least one to two hours a day. So these friends reach out and they're just like, hey, is everything okay? And Jen just says, sorry, I had a family emergency. She was often responsible for running the games. So Jen just asks if one of them can take over for a while. And her last message to the group just says FML, meaning my life. It was noticeable that Jen never returned to the guild or any other game activities. And when this group of friends finds out what happens, they are completely shocked. There's also another message that plays into those last days, and it's received by Rihanna Weaver, who's a friend of Jen's, and Jen sends her this last message. Quote, I'm trying so hard to take my own advice today, trying to look into the eye of my wife and my children that I'm never going to give up on them. I'm trying to remind myself of all the good in the world. I'm trying to believe that everything I fought for my entire life didn't just get buried in a pile of hate-filled ignorance. Trying to allow myself to fill all the f***ed up feelings that are circling through my weary body because it's okay to feel rage, disgust, and deep sadness. And it's okay to be fueled by the vast ray of emotions and not just love. And I need to breathe and figure out how to act and that's the hard part. And that quote does stick with me. Like, yes, I do think they were struggling and I do empathize with that. I would have a lot more sympathy if they did not take the lives of their children and especially if they did not abuse the children. It's just really hard for me to see past the abuse and the murder of these kids. So while I do empathize with that message alone, putting it into this story, it's like, well, you can't abuse your kids and you can't take their lives. So after Sarah sends that text to her coworkers, it's around 8.14 a.m. that same day that the Hearts are around the Newport, Oregon area from where they travel south on Route 101 until they reach State Route 1 in Leggett, California. 
they continue south on that route until reaching Fort Bragg, which is in Mendocino, California, and they stop here around 8 p.m. on March 14th, 2018. While they're here, Jen's seen on camera at a Safeway. She's purchasing a bunch of bananas, other food, snacks, just random things. And investigators are able to recover this footage since it was the first time on their trip that Jen and Sarah had used a card. Jen had used her Safeway Club card during this transaction, and up until this point, they had only used cash for all of their stops. And the cell phone pings were all that investigators could track. So they tracked them to this Safeway store specifically and then it seems that the family spends the night in that area and they stick around until 9 p.m the next day so almost 24 hours later on march 25th now we all know on march 26th that 911 phone call comes in reporting that a car had gone off the cliff on california state route one it's in mendocino county california near westport the family car had landed upside down on what was explained as a beach just below the cliff, but really it looks more like some rocks at the bottom of the cliff because the water seems to come up all the way to the cliff, but there are like enough rocks that come out of the water at the bottom that the car is being held up upside down sort of out of the water. A tow truck comes to bring the car back up to the top of the cliff and found in the car and around where the car crashed are the bodies of Jennifer, Sarah, Marcus, Jeremiah, and Abigail. So initially, only three children are recovered. Soon though, Sierra's remains are found in the Pacific Ocean and they're pulled out of the water 10 days after the crash to be laid to rest. Now two kids are left to be found. Two months after the crash, in May of 2018, the skeletal remains of a foot still inside a shoe wash up on a California beach. Authorities initially believe this is one of the children's feet, but they need DNA evidence, so they call out for any family members that could provide them with DNA samples. Months later, in October of 2018, 12 years after Tammy's three kids were adopted by the Hearts, Tammy Shurik gets a phone call from her own estranged stepmother. Her stepmom lets her know that she was just informed Tammy's biological kids had died. It was a reporter who found Tammy's stepmom through Facebook after obtaining court records, and this reporter gets in contact with the stepmom to let her know what happened to Tammy's kids. Although police did have access to those same court records, they never tried to inform Tammy that her kids had died. I mean, technically, she had no rights to them, but she doesn't find out until seven months after the tragedy. She says, quote, when I signed my rights over, my right to know anything went away. Well, once she finds out, she reads all that she can and she comes across that call out for DNA. So she comes forward to provide her DNA and see if it matched the foot that washes up on the beach. In January of 2019, when the DNA results come back in, it's 9.40 a.m. Central Time when Tammy receives an email asking her to call the, them back. They want to talk about the results. But Tammy wouldn't see that email before five hours later when the Mendocino Sheriff sends out a press release stamped for 12.26 p.m. Pacific Time and makes it public that the skeletal remains had been matched to Hannah, Tammy's biological daughter. 
Vivax Sankaran is this child welfare reform advocate as well as a law professor at University of Michigan Law School. And he said, quote, I don't know of any law that requires anything like that once your rights have been terminated to a child. The number one thing that bothers me about how we conduct business in foster care is that we've lost key concepts like humanity and dignity. We are prioritizing compliance and the needs of bureaucracy and accountability. He thinks this lack of emotion within the child welfare system stems from procedures in court that are dehumanizing, such as not calling parents by their names, just referring to them as respondent or despondent, and you know not allowing them to speak on their behalf during court. And I do tend to agree with him. When there are children of families involved, I just think that the emotional impact of these events on the kids have to be considered. And although Tammy didn't have any rights to her children, I do feel like it's something she should have been informed of. I don't know why, it just it just doesn't seem right that her three kids, she knew pretty well. I mean, Marcus was like five or six when she had to sign over her rights. So it's like, it just seems like she should have been informed, but I don't know. So now five children have been recovered. But to this day, in 2022, Devontae Hart has never been found. It's around one month after the accident on April 3rd, 2018, that a Superior Court judge does rule that Devontae was in the vehicle at the time of the crash and a death certificate is signed. Quote, It is believed that the most likely scenario is that he perished in this incident, but the case remains open and active. Through this is when the inquest is called to determine the cause of death. Police officers wanted a jury to decide if Jennifer Hart and Sarah Hart were responsible for the murders of the six Hart children. Evidence is presented in this case, such as expert analysis, which determined that the Yukon had been intentionally driven off the edge. This had happened after the hearts had come to a complete stop in that Yukon and then accelerated it to 20 miles per hour within three seconds. And it shows that the throttle is going from 34% to 100% and that there is no subsequent brake use. Toxicology reports show that Jen had been drinking leading up to the crash and her blood alcohol content was over the legal limit. Now, that might seem like maybe it was an accident. She was drinking. She went off the cliff. But obviously, with that expert analysis of the vehicle stopping and then accelerating and no brake, she clearly intended that. And then things found on Sarah's phone and other toxicology reports play into the fact that it was intentional. So Sarah, along with two of the children, have an overdose of dipahydramine in their systems. This information goes hand in hand with the Google searches that I was just talking about. So before ever leaving their house, Sarah had Googled no-kill shelters for dogs. However, the family dogs are found inside the Hart family home. And it's on that road trip that Sarah's phone makes some not-so-great searches. Is death by drowning relatively painless? How long does it take to die by hypothermia when drowning in a car? What will happen when overdosing on long drives? This information shows intent. This wasn't an accident. Even with Jennifer being drunk, she was most likely drinking just to build up her courage to drive off that cliff. While Sarah, who had 42 doses of that generic Benadryl, was most likely passed out. 
The kids had also been overdosed on Benadryl, and Jake Slates says that he believes they were most likely unconscious at the time of the accident. We can only hope that's the case. Through that investigation, friends did report that the moms often gave their kids Benadryl for long car rides to get them to go to sleep, so they most definitely knew the proper dosage. There's an incident report after the crash where a worker tells investigators an alarming statement Sarah made to her. Quote, she said that she wished someone told her it was okay not to have a big family. Then she and Jennifer would not have adopted the children. And it's like, yeah, you don't have to have a big family. And also, if this is such like impacting your life in such a way that you feel the need that, to k- take the lives of yourselves and your kids, that's just give your kids kids back like put them back in the system i i know the system isn't great but like give them a chance to live a life you did not have to have that big family anyway it's also found that jennifer and sarah were struggling with money 50 percent of the family's income was coming from the state of texas so sarah she was the assistant manager at kohl's and she's making about forty five thousand dollars a year and then the money coming in to them for like to pay for the kids from Texas, it totaled up to 41000 a year. $11,000 of those dollars came from a man who in sources identifies as the stepfather in their birth family. So this is Nathaniel Davis. He was married to Sherry Hurd. We talked about him in part one as the kid's stepfather. And although he deems himself the stepfather, the courts have him paying child support payments to the Hart family for two of the children. Now, remember, there were three children taken from Sherry, who was married to Nathaniel. So why did they have him paying? Why didn't they have him paying for all three kids if they were considering him the dad? Well, I don't think the courts have a great understanding of who exactly the fathers of these children are. But it is determined in adoption documents that Priscilla Celestine's brother is actually the father of Jeremiah. I'm pretty sure and hope very much that Priscilla Priscilla is half-sisters with Sherry and then also half-sisters with her brother, who's Jeremiah's dad, so that Sherry and Jeremiah's dad is not this case of incest, which it sounds like right off the bat, like it doesn't sound good when you say Sherry had a kid with her sister's brother, but you know. I'm hoping it's a half-brother, half-sister, Sherry and Jeremiah's dad are not actually related, and that's what it seems to be. If you remember, in part one, we went over the termination of Sherry's rights and then the dad's rights, and Devante's dad was like his alleged dad, and they terminated his rights. We kind of talked about that. I didn't know you could terminate, you know, uh, um, alleged father's rights, but then it was Priscilla's brother who is the other man in that doc in the other document, which was Clarence Celestine. Priscilla Celestine makes sense, and in that document, it it names Clarence Celestine as the father of the other two children. So I don't know the whole like everything kind of in the situation. It's strange that Nathaniel's paying child support. Maybe it was Sherry who was ordered to pay the child support. I don't know. I don't know. 
Now, remember, the Hearts, they didn't even live in Washington for longer than one year. They had moved in May of 2017, and the crash happens in March of 2018. They had purchased their three-bedroom home for $375,000, and on top of that, they had $21,000 in credit in credit card debt. So could Jennifer and Sarah have been fearing that if their kids were taken, half of their income was also going to be taken? I mean, Jennifer could have just got, gone and gotten a job and they could have just not abused their children and not had them taken in the first place, but what do I know? Another strange thing in the home is that no family photos are hung up or seen and there are zero like keepsakes or items that belong to the children. It almost seems like no teenagers lived there. And something else is that the refrigerator is stocked full of hot dogs, ham, chicken breasts, and beef, while the freezer has fish, corn dogs, and other meats inside. Now, maybe you're questioning me, like, why is that weird? They have meat in their freezer and fridge? Well, it all ties back to the fact that Jennifer is thriving off keeping this fake image of her family alive on social media. We dove into that a bit in part one, and it is a huge part of this case. Jennifer had multiple posts on how their family grows their own food and how they're vegetarians. She speaks to this in one of her posts with it has Sierra holding this huge thing of kale, which Sierra is absolutely adorable in this picture. She has this huge smile. She looks like you know, somewhere from like three to five years old. And she's just so cute. And this is posted on November 5th, 2013. So all this stuff is determined through that inquest. And there's a 14 member coroner's jury that unanimously decides this case was a murder suicide. The California Highway Patrol comes out with a statement explaining that criminal prosecution would not be possible due to the fact that those who murdered the children also died in the accident. Thomas, the alumna who was the sheriff's coroner, holds a press conference to state that the death certificates for Jennifer and Sarah Hart will be listed as suicide, but the six children who perished on that day were determined to have died at the hands of their mothers, so their death certificates list homicide as the manner of death. By 2019, the Mendocino County Sheriff's Department closes the case and releases declassified records. And although some friends couldn't bring themselves to believe what Jen and Sarah had done, others believe the evidence. One friend stated that he was grateful for the law enforcement because they were able to come in and have it decided by a jury so that there is really no option for doubt. He explains that the conclusion is the worst possible case and he hates it. But at the same time, now he knows what happened and he doesn't feel like it needs to be argued about anymore. Another friend of Jen's, Dan Corey, explains Jen as a reasonable and polite person, although she did seem frustrated with the social issues in this world. He also explains how Jen posted so often on social media and really created the lack of boundaries and privacy. However, leading up to the tragedy, he didn't see any signs, but he believes that Jen must have deteriorated into some sort of insanity. Quote, if you want to kill yourself, it's one thing, but I don't see why you need to take anyone else with you. And Christopher Worth, who seemed extremely close with the family, describing them as one big family hug and they were full of intoxicating love. He even said a lot of nice things about Jen and Sarah. Even he was able to see the complicated and hidden background of this family. Quote, I don't know what happened. The evidence overwhelmingly suggests that the last moment was intentional. 
which given the undeniable and overwhelming beauty of that family and of the children, that decision is impossible. I guess things can get hard and desperate and people make extreme rash decisions. And I do not understand it. There's no understanding it. We should question everything, but then we should come back to what we know. And what we know is that there are facts that led us to believe Janet and Sarah weren't who we believed them to be, but the kids were. The kids were exactly who they were. This tragedy was a huge loss to lose those children and then lose the ability to tell the story those kids were authentic. And then Brittany knew one of Sarah's coworkers makes a great point. She explains Sarah's having this earthy, flowy vibe to her, and Sarah was her manager at Kohl's in the Beaverton during 2015. What Brittany finds weird in hindsight is that Sarah never talked about her family, and through all their time working together, Sarah just seemed to hide more of herself. She wasn't an open book, and everyone who worked with her, all the coworkers, they didn't know anything about Sarah besides she was married and she had six kids. Brittany says that there is no one besides the family who actually knows what happened. Quote, we only know what they wanted us to see. Dana DeKalb's heart breaks every time she thinks of those kids. She can't wrap her mind around the fact that Sarah and Jen were still allowed to adopt their children after the first allegation of abuse. And then as the pattern continued, it was allowed to happen over and over. It just doesn't seem like it should have been possible. Sarah pleads guilty to the abuse of her children, and then they're just allowed to pick up and move to Oregon. Even after being weighed aware of the allegations in Minnesota, Oregon does conduct their own investigation, determining in 2013 that the kids are safe. They never seem to want to stay somewhere where they were investigated. Dana says even when the dots were connected, the allegations were ignored for far too long. But Dana doesn't think this decision was made just based on the fact that CPS had opened a new investigation there in Washington and knocked on the front door of the Hart home on March 23rd, 2018, one day before they left on this road trip. Dana thinks something sinister happened before they ever left Washington, and that's why they left. Could this be true? It can be seen as a mystery still because Devante has never been recovered. So we can't say without a doubt that he was in the car when it took its plunge off the cliff. While law enforcement says that it's the most likely scenario, you never know. Could Devante have been killed before the Hearts drove out of their driveway on that March 23rd morning? Could that have led to this extreme decision by Jen and Sarah, not only to take their own lives, but to murder all of their children? It could be a possible scenario but there's no evidence to back it up. Like I said, the car seems to have just been just held just above the rocks of the ocean. And we know only the skeletal remains of Hannah's foot were ever recovered. So it's very likely that Devante was lost in the ocean water. What really scares psychiatrist Octavio, who we talked about in part one as well, is that idea of having the perfect family and putting forth this perfect ideology of who you are. Octavio says that someone who is perpetrating this ideal life can ignore all common sense and precaution, and that the California road trip was probably unplanned and likely impulsive. Quote, a woman who feels like she's going to be found out by the world. She's been projecting a certain image to the world. I'm not saying that's what happened, but it's very plausible someone who's desperate that the mask is about to be ripped off. Frankly, they would rather die than be found out by the world. 
Sarah and Jen were 38 years old at the time of their deaths. And I'm sorry, you guys, but you were still found out by this world. And this act of taking six pure and innocent lives was evil. March 26th, 2018 was a devastating time in California, Washington, Texas, and all across the nation. Marcus, who was born July 1st, 1998, was 19 years old at the time of his death. He would have turned 20 just four months later that July. Hannah, who was born February 25th, 2002, was 16 years old at the time of her death. She had her birthday just one month earlier, almost to the exact date of the crash. Devante, who was born October 24, 2002, was 15 years old at the time of his death and would have turned 16 just seven months later that October. Jeremiah was born February 24, 2004, and he was 14 years old at the time of his death. He also celebrated his birthday just one month before the crash, one day before his sister Hannah, exactly one month before they leave on that road trip to California. Abigail, who was born on December 26, 2003, was 14 years old at the time of her death and would have turned 15 just nine months later that December. Sierra, who was born on March 20, 2005, was 13 years old at the time of her death. She had her birthday three days before that tragic road trip starts. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm your host, Kayla Waters. I research, write, edit, all of the fun things for this podcast. Alicia Jenkins is the co-host. Charlie Waters is the palate cleanser giver. Make sure you follow our social media on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and more. And make sure to visit our website at www.truecrimeexposedpodcast.com. Hi, I'm Charlie Waters, and today I'm going to be talking about baby alligators. Did you know that baby alligators are called hatchlings and their mother mother is called cow? Which makes no sense because they're not a cow. And the dad alligator is called a bull because it makes no sense because they're not even close to the animal. It says that hatchlings break through from a shell with their egg tooth. Um, what an egg tooth is? It helps them get out of their shell, and when they get out of their shell, they lose that tooth. And then when they get bigger and bigger, they grow more tooth. Teeth. Bye. Have a great day. If you go to Prevent Child Abuse Washington, you're going to find an awesome organization that you can donate to, that you can connect with community, that you can help get involved with. Their phone number is 360-688-6367, and their goal is to protect children and strengthen families so that they can flourish. I highly encourage you to visit that website I gave you, find out about their advocacy efforts, learn into how they're building prevention pathways for families for at, at risk for that are at risk for child we- welfare involvement and there you can find a donate button a learn more button and just explore this organization for yourself